Welcome to the April 14th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we'll discuss the efficacy of the obinutuzumab-lenalidomide combination in advanced follicular lymphoma. Learn more about the underlying mechanisms of anemia in children infected with plasmodium falciparum and discuss how granulocyte microvesicles could improve outcomes in septic shock. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled Obinutuzumab plus lenalidomide, Galen, in advanced, previously untreated follicular lymphoma in need of systemic therapy, by Emmanuel Bashi from the University Hospital of Lyon in France and colleagues. Follicular lymphoma is the most common form of indolent lymphoma, accounting for approximately 30% of all lymphoma cases. Patients with follicular lymphoma present with a wide spectrum of clinical presentations that require different approaches to treatment, from observation to chemotherapy. In the past decade, frontline treatment has evolved to include immunomodulatory therapies, such as lenalidomide, in combination with anti-CD20 antibodies, such as rituximab, Chemotherapy-free regimens are especially attractive for the many follicular lymphoma patients who are older and have a variety of comorbidities. Obinutuzumab is an IgG1-type recombinant, humanized and glycoengineered type 2 anti-CD20 antibody, with more effective anti-lymphoma activity both in vitro and in animal models compared to other anti-CD20 antibodies. In combination with chemotherapy, obinutuzumab has shown improved progression-free survival compared to rituximab in patients with follicular lymphoma. One of the advantages of obinutuzumab over rituximab is its ability to exert greater antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity with reduced complement-dependent cytotoxicity. Lenalidomide is an immunomodulatory agent which binds the cerebellon E3 ligase complex and triggers ubiquination and degradation of key transcription factors in B and T cells. This results in reduced proliferation and modulates many immune responses, including altered cytokine production, amplified T cell co-stimulation, and increased natural killer cell cytotoxicity. In patients with follicular lymphoma, the combination of lenalidomide and rituximab has proven effective in the relapsed or refractory setting and has resulted in prolonged progression-free survival compared to rituximab monotherapy. The authors hypothesized that a combination of obinutuzumab and lenalidomide, which they refer to as the Galen combination, could harness the mechanisms of action of both agents. A phase 1b trial using this combination in relapsed refractory patients with follicular lymphoma was reported in blood in 2018 and showed promising results. Thus, in this phase 2 trial, they assessed the efficacy and safety of obinutuzumab and lenalidomide as a first-line treatment option for patients with follicular lymphoma. The study enrolled a total of 100 previously untreated patients with advanced follicular lymphoma who were 18 years or older, across 21 medical centers in France and Belgium from October 2015 to February 2017. Induction treatment consisted of six cycles of obinutuzumab given as a flat dose of 1,000 mg for each infusion, plus lenalidomide 20 mg per day. Maintenance therapy included obinutuzumab 1,000 mg every two cycles, plus lenalidomide 10 mg for less than or equal to 12 cycles followed by a second year of maintenance with obinutuzumab only. The primary endpoint was the complete response rate, 
per international working group criteria at the end of the six induction cycles of Galen. Secondary endpoints included the overall response rate at the end of induction, ORR and CRR at the end of treatment, and best response during treatment. Additional secondary endpoints included progression-free survival, time to next anti-lymphoma treatment, duration of response, overall survival, and safety. Median patient age at enrollment was 60.5 years, and 45% were male. 17% of patients had low-risk disease, 40% had intermediate-risk disease, and 43% had high-risk disease, according to the International Prognostic Index Score. The Galen combination yielded a complete response rate of 47% after induction and an overall response rate of 92%. After completion of therapy, the CRR was 63% and ORR was 79%. Post hoc analyses revealed an additional 13 patients with missing bone marrow assessments who fulfilled the CRR criteria, which yielded a complete metabolic response of 80% and ORR of 94%. At a median follow-up of 3.7 years, the three-year progression-free survival and overall survival were 82% and 94%, respectively. The most common adverse event was neutropenia, with grade 3 or greater neutropenia occurring in 47% or more of patients. However, only 2% of patients presented with febrile neutropenia, and lesser-grade neutropenias were easily managed. No other grade 3 or higher toxicities occurred at a frequency greater than 3%. Taken together, this study demonstrated promising clinical efficacy and acceptable safety profile of the chemotherapy-free obinutuzumab-lenalidomide combination in previously untreated follicular lymphoma with a high tumor burden. In an accompanying commentary, Connie Batlevy from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York notes that the study by Bashee and collaborators represents a promising advancement for frontline follicular lymphoma treatment. Keeping in mind the limitations of cross-trial comparisons, Batlevy estimates a 15% absolute increase in the number of patients achieving complete remission with obinutuzumab lenalidomide in this study compared to the rituximab lenalidomide arm of the frontline relevance trial. While the mechanism of action of obinutuzumab favors it as a more effective anti-CD20 antibody, it remains uncertain as to whether rituximab or obinutuzumab is the more effective choice when combined with lenalidomide in follicular lymphoma. She also emphasizes that PET-based measurements of disease are needed to objectively evaluate metabolic response in future studies, which may be more relevant to clinical care. In conclusion, Batlevy stresses that financial hurdles and lack of adequate supportive care continue to hinder the adoption of chemotherapy-free regimens such as obinutuzumab and lenalidomide. With high out-of-pocket costs for lenalidomide therapy, a speedy intervention is needed to improve the financial accessibility of this important medication. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Plasma Biomarkers of Hemoglobin Loss in Plasmodium Falciparum Infected Children Identified by Quantitative Proteomics by Al-Mahamadou Mahamar from the University of Bamako in Bamako, Mali, and colleagues. Anemia is a common manifestation of plasmodium falciparum infection in children, and severe malarial anemia is an important cause of mortality in infected pediatric patients. In 2020, an estimated 627,000 deaths were attributed to malaria globally. The greatest proportion of these deaths occur in children with severe malarial anemia in West Africa. 
During the three to four month long rainy season in West Africa, severe malarial anemia frequently necessitates blood transfusions and is an important cause of death in children younger than five. In Plasmodium falciparum infected children, anemia typically appears as an abrupt drop in hemoglobin. It is believed that two major mechanisms contribute to severe malarial anemia. First, hemolysis of infected and uninfected erythrocytes, and second, insufficient erythropoiesis. Previous research has suggested that hemolysis of uninfected red blood cells occurs due to membrane protein and lipid modifications, including reduced levels of CD55 and complement receptor 1, or CR1. Interestingly, bone marrow studies of patients with malarial anemia have also pointed to dyserythropoiesis. However, a detailed understanding of why some malarial infections cause severe anemia, whereas others cause very little change in hemoglobin concentrations and the mechanisms at play, is still lacking. In the current study, investigators aimed to identify novel factors associated with acute hemoglobin loss during malarial infection using quantitative proteomics analysis of plasma samples of patients from Mali. The goal of this approach was to identify the pathways and specific proteins with a potential role in hemolysis or insufficient erythropoiesis during malarial infection. The authors conducted a quantitative proteomic screen of a large number of potential blood markers in nine children with different hematological responses to P. falciparum infection. Study participants attended routine monthly clinical visits during the malarial seasons, as well as checkups every two months during the dry season and at any other time they were feeling ill. Severe malarial anemia was defined as parasitemia detected by blood smear microscopy and hemoglobin levels below 6 grams per deciliter. For quantitative proteomic analyses, investigators randomly selected three samples from P. falciparum-infected children in the three following groups, those with stable hemoglobin, those with moderate anemia and a hemoglobin drop greater than 1.5 grams per deciliter, and those with severe malarial anemia and a hemoglobin of less than 6 grams per deciliter. These samples were matched for age and parasite density. By including infected children with stable hemoglobin as a group, they sought to identify changes related to a reduction in hemoglobin rather than changes associated with malaria infection per se. ELISA was employed in the validation study to measure the levels of identified circulating blood markers in selected plasma samples. Finally, using statistical methods, the authors analyzed the differences between groups in protein abundance, soluble mediator levels measured by ELISA, and proteasome activities. Quantitative proteomics analysis identified a total of 1,205 human proteins, of which 856 were identified and quantified with at least two unique peptides in all samples. The relative abundance of these proteins in children with hemoglobin drop was expressed as a log-2-fold change relative to samples from children with stable hemoglobin. Ingenuity pathway analysis, conducted to infer functional association between plasma protein abundance and hemoglobin drop, revealed the existence of two interconnected subnetworks. One subnetwork was enriched with multiple 20S proteasome subunits that were significantly more abundant in children with reduced compared to those with stable hemoglobin. The other subnetwork consisted of protein families that were associated with response to infection, blood coagulation, and lipid metabolism, including NAMPT, IL-18, alpha-1 antitrypsin, and IGF-1. A closer look at the data revealed higher plasma levels of circulating 20S proteasome and lower IGF-1 levels in children with both moderate and severe reductions in hemoglobin, compared to malarial-infected children with stable hemoglobin levels. 
These findings were then confirmed prospectively using an ELISA validation study in a subset of 70 children from the same cohort. Taken together, these findings led the authors to speculate that circulating 20S proteasome may contribute to hemolysis in infected children by digesting erythrocyte membrane proteins modified by oxidative stress, whereas decreases in IGF-1, a critical factor for erythroid maturation, may contribute to inadequate erythropoiesis. In an accompanying commentary, Nicholas White from the Center for Tropical Medicine and Global Health in Oxford, United Kingdom, notes that the study by Mahamar and colleagues reports on interesting new predictors of malarial-associated anemia in children living in an area of intense seasonal malaria transmission. In reflecting on the author's speculation that circulating 20S proteasome and decreased IGF-1 might contribute to inadequate erythropoiesis, he cautions that association does not necessarily mean causation and that further studies are needed to elucidate these interesting findings. He believes that future studies should focus on more accurately quantitating the preceding malarial parasite biomass and on characterizing the sequence of events that precede the reduction in hemoglobin in Plasmodium falciparum-infected children. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Granulocyte microvesicles with a high plasmin generation capacity promote clot lysis and improve outcome in septic shock by Sylvie Conte from the Marseille Public Hospital System in Marseille, France, and colleagues. Septic shock is a systemic response to infection and a common occurrence in the intensive care setting. 10 to 20% of patients admitted to the ICU will experience septic shock, and of those, 30 to 50% will die. Septic shock is characterized by systemic inflammation and intense coagulation activity with defective fibrinolysis, which leads to disseminated intravascular coagulation, widespread development of fibrin clots, microvascular occlusion, reduced oxygen delivery to tissues, leading to multiple organ failure and death. Cell-derived microvesicles are subcellular particles released into the bloodstream by activated or apoptotic cells. Microvesicles participate in the hemostatic equilibrium and play a role in organ dysfunction and tissue injury by exerting procoagulant and pro-inflammatory effects. Previous studies have reported elevated levels of microvesicles in patients with sepsis and have confirmed their harmful procoagulant role in septic shock. More recently, a series of studies have also shown that microvesicles from endothelial cells and leukocytes possess fibrinolytic activity, which is increased in patients with septic shock with a favorable outcome. Quante and collaborators hypothesized that the plasmin generation capacity of microvesicles could confer a protective effect supported by their capacity to lie as a thrombus and investigated the mechanisms involved in the current study. They analyzed microvesicles from blood samples of patients with septic shock within the first 24 hours after admission in the ICU, as well as from healthy controls. Microvesicles were characterized using immunomagnetic separation, flow cytometry, fibrin zymography, ELISA, and plasmin generation assays. The lytic effect of microvesicles was assessed using two different in vitro fluorescence lysis tests. The authors used a murine model of sepsis to assess the effects of treating septic mice with intravenous injections of microvesicles derived from granulocytes of healthy individuals. They analyzed the mortality, clinical score, and kidney and lung tissues of all treated animals and compared them with controls. 
The study found that granulocyte microvesicles from septic shock patients displayed a heterogeneous profile of plasmin generation capacity that was driven by the urokinase, urokinase plasminogen activator receptor, or UPAR, system. Microvesicles with high levels of plasmin generation capacity were loaded with higher levels of urokinase and had higher levels of UPAR compared to those from patients whose microvesicles had low activity for generating plasmin. Furthermore, the authors found that granulocyte microvesicles from septic shock patients lysed clocks in vitro in a urokinase UPAR-dependent manner, and that the addition of exogenous urokinase increased their clot lysis activity. Taken together, these studies suggest that the balance between the coagulation and fibrinolytic system plays an important role in the outcome of septic patients. Next, experiments in mice revealed that the injection of human granulocyte microvesicles with high plasmin generating capacity, along with exogenous urokinase, significantly improved mouse survival and reduced the number of thrombi in the kidneys and lungs. This observation was accompanied by normalization of D-dimer levels of treated mice at day 5 and increased levels of plasmin alpha-2 antiplasmin, pointing to the establishment of a more fibrinolytic profile. Interestingly, there was no improvement in the survival of mice who were injected with soluble urokinase alone. Finally, a multiplex array analysis of 23 molecules from plasma of septic patients revealed that the levels of neutrophil elastase correlate with granulocyte microvesicle plasmin generating capacity and increase their fibrinolytic activity by degrading plasminogen activator inhibitor 1. Therefore, neutrophils increase fibrinolysis in two ways. They release UPAR-expressing microvesicles that bind urokinase and increase plasmin generation, and also release neutrophil elastase that degrades plasminogen activator inhibitor 1. Granulocyte-derived microvesicles with a high level of plasmin generation capacity reduced thrombus formation and improved survival, as demonstrated in a mouse model of sepsis. In an accompanying commentary, Nigel Mackman and Yohei Hisada from the University of North Carolina note that the study by Quante and colleagues presents compelling evidence that granulocyte microvesicles improve survival of septic mice by rebalancing the coagulation and fibrinolytic systems. However, they caution that it is possible that granulocyte microvesicles have other beneficial effects on the survival of septic mice. For example, neutrophil microvesicles contain annexin-1 that exerts anti-inflammatory activity. The possibility of using granulocyte microvesicles with plasmin-generating capacity in the treatment of patients with sepsis or other disorders associated with microvascular thrombosis, such as COVID-19, is nevertheless exciting. Mackman and Hisada believe that future studies should further investigate the therapeutic potential of microvesicles derived from human granulocytes. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.